Pro wrestling is so real. I'm so glad I ate six chalupas. My bazooka gum still has flavor. Keanu Reeves is such a versatile actor. Mmm! Heartburn! I love it when people cut me off. I'm really craving a good steak. Applebee's? Yes, forgot to charge my phone. I have got too much money. Well, good morning. It's good to be with all of you today. Uh, my name is Chris, and I want you to know up front, I'm going to ask a lot of your imagination today. So the more you participate in that, the more meaningful our time here this morning will be together. So we're just, we're just going to get right after it. So imagine this with me. It might help if you close your eyes, if you take yourself to this place. So imagine this with me. The day is July 20th, and it's just after midnight. A new day is very young, and you're sitting amongst some friends, but you're mostly in a room full of strangers. You've all gathered on this day to catch the premiere of the latest installment in the Batman movies, The Dark Knight Rises. At this point in the movie, you're about 30 minutes in, and the action on the screen, it's vivid, and it's nonstop. And then out of the corner of your eye, down by the screen, somebody appears, and then they're wearing what looks to be like a Joker costume. And they've come from the exit, and you think at first that this might have something to do with the premiere, a special element of it. But then gas begins to fill the theater. You can't see. It becomes a little bit difficult to breathe. And then shots ring out. The man in the costume is actually a gunman. And he begins to shoot into the seats, the very seats that you are sitting in. And at this point there, there's really no chance to leave or get out of there. And the moment becomes filled instantly with chaos and terror and even blood. And just as quickly as it started, it's over and 10 people have been killed. Two will die later and 58 others injured. It's all horrifying. And it's all real. And so what are we supposed to do with this? Whether we were in that theater or not, how do we respond? What does this tragedy actually look like through the eyes of those of us who would call ourselves followers of Jesus? And as the heaviness and the freshness of such an incident as that shooting settles on top of us, we start to think of things like punishment or, or life or justice Right or healing, or we think of the victims in redemption. And then immediately sparks from that tragedy start to ignite memories within us. Right Of, all, of those times maybe where, where we've been hurt by injustice. Maybe where we've experienced pain from the loss of someone we loved. Or, or maybe we're reminded of those times where we've actually been the ones heaping pain and suffering onto somebody else and those memories they like keep coming back 
and they start to sit in us, and the, the, these struggles, they start to become issues of our heart that center on things like forgiveness, right? How do we forgive? How do we find forgiveness? They start to, to center on things like fairness and freedom in our faith. How do you have faith in an instant like that in your life? How do you, how do you decide what's fair? How, how do you stumble upon freedom with all this baggage of pain and frustration and struggle coming down on you? Madness like the, the shooting that happened in Aurora, Colorado, they bring us all face to face with our humanity. Like if you've caught the news at all in the last couple weeks, you know this. When we see our humanity face to face, whatever side we might be on, it's almost impossible to look away. And so now the question becomes, how do we deal with all of this pain and baggage or confusion that's been heaped upon us over our lifetime? Not just this one incident standing alone by itself, but what we've experienced as a whole. Again, whether it's been laid down on us or whether we're putting it on other people. Because the, the struggle in Aurora, Colorado isn't just about processing the life of, of the shooter, James Holmes. It's actually about processing what God plans to do with our lives. Like every single one of us. Because when we hear something like that and we watch it happen, we, we think he must, God must have something better Right, something freeing, something meaningful, something divine within all of the struggle and heartache we've been experiencing. There must be something more. He must have something for us. And before we, we dig in and maybe find out what that might be, I'd just like to, to pray for all of us. So would you pray with me? God, this morning... We ask that you would soften our hearts, that you would open up our hearts, that, that you would help us believe that you do have something better, some meaning within all of the struggles that all of us have been facing. Maybe it's something that happened in our lives this week, even God. I pray that then we would be able to come in here, that you would help us receive what you have to say to us. We understand that your, your greatness is beyond our comprehension, that, that you always have some plan in mind. I pray that you would give us eyes and ears to see and hear what that might be, Father. We give you this morning, we give you our hearts, and we do this all for your glory. In your name we pray. Amen. So as, as I try to, to process the Aurora tragedy or really I could just say any struggle in my life, whether it's something that might seem simple like being rude to my wife, or maybe it's experiencing the injustice of water-deprived kids in Ethiopia, or whether it's some struggle where I see high school students continuing to put their, their trust in little gods that don't deliver anything, whatever that struggle is, I try to look at it through the lens of Jesus and his sacrifice on the cross for you and I. And now, I, when I wrote that and when I say it out loud, I'm not unaware of how Christian-y that actually sounds. Like, I, I get that. That sounds Christian-y. We're supposed to say that 
But, but remember, right, today we're going to use our imaginations, and we're going to put ourselves into the moment. So before we, we discard the notion that Jesus and the cross has anything to do with us processing our pain, right, our, our forgiveness, our tragedy in our own lives, I want us to take a look at the scene that leads up to the crucifixion, the scene that takes place there. So we're going to start in Luke 23, verse 1. And I just want to be up front with you. We're going to read a big chunk of scripture at once. All right, you came to church though, right? Like, what do you expect? We're going to use our Bibles. And it's going to be verses 1 through 25. And so when you hear that, I don't want you right now to tune out and be like, all right, we'll get to the end. And then he'll say something that I haven't heard before. I want you to use your imagination. I want you to place yourself into this story Right? There's going to be rooms full of people, crowds of people shouting things. Put yourself in the moment. Experience it as those people experienced it. So here we are in Luke 23, starting in verse 1. Here's what it says. Then the entire council took Jesus to Pilate, the Roman governor. They began to state their case. Right At this point, Judas had betrayed Jesus. They had gone to get Jesus and take him before the council. And here's, here's what they had to say. They said, this man has been leading our people astray by telling them not to pay their taxes to the Roman government and by claiming he is the Messiah, a king. So Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus replied, you have said it. So Pilate turned to the leading priests and to the crowd and said, I find nothing wrong with this man. Then they became insistent. But he is causing riots by his teaching wherever he goes, all over Judea, from Galilee to Jerusalem. So Pilate has a question. He says, oh, is he a Galilean? When they said that he was, Pilate sent him to Herod because Galilee was under Herod's jurisdiction and Herod happened to be in Jerusalem at the time, right? Pilate didn't want anything to do with this. He says, go away, take this somewhere else. And it turns out that Herod was delighted at the opportunity to see Jesus because he had heard about him and had been hoping for a long time to see him perform a miracle. Or he thought he was kind of like a, a magic genie and he asked Jesus question after question but Jesus refused to answer. Like imagine that scene, you're in the room with the king and he's asking this supposed criminal question after question and you get nothing but silence. He refused to answer. Meanwhile, the leading priests and the teachers of religious law stood there shouting their accusations. Then Herod and his soldiers began mocking and ridiculing Jesus. Finally, they put a royal robe on him and sent him back to Pilate. Right, whatever. Like he's, he's crazy. He's weird. Let's just make fun of him and get rid of him. So Herod and Pilate, who had been enemies before, became friends that day. Then Pilate called together the leading priests and other religious leaders along with the people. Right, so now there's a big old room full of people. And he announced his verdict. He says, you brought this man to me, accusing him of leading a revolt. I have examined him thoroughly on this point in your presence and find him innocent. Herod came to the same conclusion and sent him back to us. Nothing this man has done calls for the death penalty. So I will have him flogged and then I will release him. As soon as that happens, then a mighty roar rose from the crowd. Right, you're in this crowd. Again, he's saying again, Jesus is innocent and the mighty roar comes out and with one voice they shouted, kill him and release Barabbas to us. 
Barabbas was in prison for taking part in an insurrection in Jerusalem against the government and for murder, right? He was like a real hardened criminal. He had actually done something wrong. And Pilate argued with them because he wanted to release Jesus. But they kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him. For the third time, he demanded, why? What crime has he committed? I have found no reason to sentence him to death, so I will have him flogged, and then I will release him. But again, the mob shouted louder and louder, demanding that Jesus be crucified, and their voices prevailed. So Pilate sentenced Jesus to die, as they demanded. As they had requested, he released Barabbas, the man in prison for insurrection and murder. But he turned Jesus over to them to do as they wished. And here's what they wished to do. They wished to beat him, brutally beat him, mock him within inches of his life. And then they wanted to crucify him. They wanted to kill him, a form of death that was often reserved for criminals, for foreigners, for slaves. It was common during that time, but it was the most undesirable way to die. And after they they had done all of that to him and they had beat him, they said, here's your cross that we're going to crucify you on. Would you carry that up the hill to your death? And so he carries it up the hill and that's where we're gonna fast forward and we're gonna pick up the story in verses 33 and 34. Here's what happens at the top of that hill. When they came to a place called the skull, that was the name of the hill, they nailed him to the cross. And the criminals were also crucified, one on his right and one on his left. You see, they were actually crucifying real criminals that day too. But they put Jesus in the middle of them as if to say, you are the worst. And all of that's happened and he is hanging there on the cross. He's already been nailed and here's what he says. Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they are doing. And the soldiers gambled for his clothes by throwing dice. And that's where I want us to settle today. We're currently in a series that we're calling Stuff Nobody Says, the surprising sayings of Jesus. And now here we are, we find Jesus hanging from a cross, right, a cross he had just carried to the top of this hill after being brutally beaten, completely innocent of any wrongdoing. And he utters these words in that moment, a moment often reserved for hate and resentment, he says, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they are doing. Like, let's be real, nobody says that. Nobody says that, do they? In the midst of tragedy, say like the Aurora shooting something so brutal and horrifying and scary, in the midst of pain and suffering and injustice, the heart of Jesus actually beats forgiveness. Right, and nobody says that. Nobody does that, but that doesn't mean that we can't say that. That doesn't mean it can't be us. It doesn't mean our hearts can't also beat forgiveness. It doesn't mean that this example in life of Jesus isn't attainable. Right, because so often we look at such an instance of insane forgiveness and love. When we read that story, when we read those two verses right there in Luke, we're like, whoa. Our minds are blown by that. We're like, that is amazing, Jesus. 
If only I could achieve that. If only I could live like that. Or we think, if only someone could forgive me like that. And in modeling the life of Jesus, it, it sounds good and all. Like, we get it. Jesus says it over and over again. It's in the Bible. We're all on board. Okay, imitate Jesus. Right, but then we see him hanging from a cross, a cross he didn't deserve to die on. We see him looking down at his accusers and his killers with love. With love, and that's when he says, Father, forgive them. Forgive them, and we're left with this impression on our minds, right, that, that in this moment of living like Jesus, that is beyond us. Like, we are not capable of that. That is too far beyond us. And here's the, the bad news first. The bad news is, is if you haven't given your life to Jesus, you haven't accepted his uh, saving grace, then yeah, maybe that's going to be beyond you. But the good news is twofold. That can change. And if you have given Jesus everything, if he does have your heart and your soul, then you have access to the power of the Holy Spirit, the same power that compels Jesus in that moment to look at those taking his life and speak in love, forgive them. So I want us to wrap our minds around the Holy Spirit in the life of Jesus so that we might wrap our minds around the Holy Spirit and the power we've received in our own lives. And I, and I know I've kind of flipped the script on you there, right? Like we were like, Father, forgive them. Jesus was on a cross, and now we're talking about the Holy Spirit. But, but it'll all come together. So here's what we know about the Holy Spirit. Jesus had the Holy Spirit. We know that. Jesus had the Holy Spirit. It says this in Luke 3, 21 and 22. This is right at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. John the Baptist is baptizing people, and it says, One day when the crowds were being baptized, Jesus himself was baptized. As he was praying, the heavens opened, and the Holy Spirit in bodily form descended on him like a dove. And a voice from heaven said, You are my dearly loved son, and you bring me great joy. Like the beginning of Jesus' ministry coincided with the Holy Spirit descending on his life, the Holy Spirit present in his life. So everything that happens that we read about in the New Testament that Jesus did follows this moment when Jesus had the power of the Holy Spirit present in his life. And so it's interesting then to find out what Jesus actually thinks of the Holy Spirit. We find what Jesus thinks of the Holy Spirit in John 16 Seven, And so he's talking to his disciples, and this is what he says to him. He says, but in fact, it is best for you that I go away. Because if I don't, the advocate, that is the Holy Spirit, won't come. If I do go away, then I will send him, the Holy Spirit, to you. Like if we start to understand that, that should blow your mind. Because Jesus is telling us that we're actually better off without him. We're better off without Jesus. He says he needs to go away so that we can have something better, so that we can have the power of the Holy Spirit within us. And so if Jesus is actually telling us that we're going to be better off when he goes away, then we must take the Holy Spirit and his power seriously. We've got to take it seriously, but the question becomes, what is this power that we supposedly have access to? 
What is the power of the Holy Spirit? And that's revealed to us in Romans 8, 11. One of my favorite verses, it says this, the Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. And just as God raised Christ Jesus from the dead, he will give life to your mortal bodies by this same spirit living in you. Like if you didn't catch it in the first sentence that the Holy Spirit lives in you, there's another one there to remind you that no, that this same spirit is living in you. Like at this moment when we start to realize that, any doubt that we had about the, the being like Jesus, uh, you know, he's forgiving people from the vantage point of hanging from the cross, like that we can't do that. Like that doubt is just crushed. We can't doubt anymore. He's saying to us that imitating his life is actually attainable. It's actually something that we can do. And so the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead which we can't even just rush over that, right? Like, Jesus was actually dead. No breathing, no heart beating, and the Spirit raised him from the dead. That same power, and the same power that filled Jesus' heart with love and forgiveness in the most unlikely of circumstances is the very same, the very same power that's inside of you and I. Like, we're not simply on our own when it comes to being like and living like Jesus. And so let's then direct our attention back to the shooting at the theater in Colorado, right? A a tragedy that is still so fresh within us. Can we forgive James Holmes, the shooter? What, What if our family or our friend was a victim? Then could we forgive What if we were one of the victims? Could we forgive? And like, maybe maybe we're all too far removed from the shooting uh, in Colorado to accurately evaluate our response in the state of our heart and how we would would respond to such a thing as that. So so how about if we look at our own lives? Because a lot of the times it's easy to look at, at something else that's happening in somebody else's life. Let's look at our own. Like what's going to be your response to the pain of say a divorce or or the tragedy of unjustly losing someone you love? What's your response to something that it might be simple yet, yet hurtful like a comment on Facebook or Twitter? Like what's your response to that? What's your response to another lie from someone you've loved and trusted for so long and it starts to break down that trust, what's your response going to be to that? And really it can be so much deeper that we've all experienced something that someone else might not relate to or understand and I don't want to make light of the fact that we're probably all in this room deeply scarred by some sort of experience with someone in our life that hurt us, that pained us, But let me just ask it as simply as I can. Will you forgive those people just as Jesus does? Will you forgive those people just as Jesus does? Like, it's hard. We can all agree on that. 
It's hard, but it's not impossible, right? Because we have access to the same power that Jesus had access to in a circumstance in which he was hanging on a cross as people were killing him and he was forgiving them. That same power is the power we have access to, but maybe, maybe that's not enough for you. Maybe you're like, nah, nah convinced that's a little crazy even and I'm not on board with that. So here, here's why forgiveness matters then. Here's why it matters straight from the mouth of Jesus, we find this in Matthew 6, 14 and 15. And here's what Jesus says. He says, if you forgive those who sin against you, your heavenly Father will forgive you. And so often we love to stop right there because that sounds great. Like we can get on board with that, but here's what it says next. But if you refuse to forgive others, your Father will not forgive your sins like now we've got to look inward okay because there's only one instance where our our all-loving God doesn't offer us forgiveness one time and it's when we refuse to forgive others like there's no sliding scale for us that like oh this is something that I don't have to forgive just yet and this is something I can harbor inside of me like it's not that kind of scale it's an all-encompassing command Jesus is saying forgive now forgive now like he's saying you don't have to wait for some magical moment inside of you when you feel ready to forgive he's saying forgive now because you have been forgiven. And in that instance when Jesus refuses forgiveness, right, when our, when our hearts are unforgiving, he's not doing it to make some point, to, to make a statement, to reinforce his rules as he's, as he's up on his soapbox trying to tell us what to do. That's not why he's doing it. He knows that when we grasp the extent of his forgiveness for our sins, that our only response is to forgive, right? Because those who have been forgiven much, forgive much. And Jesus' accusers in this story of the crucifixion, right? They're not just some, some people we read about. They're not just some characters who are accusing and killing him. Like, they're us. We are them, Like it was our sin that sent him to the cross. Our sin drove the nails. Like we deserved the separation and death. But look, Jesus, he he goes up to the cross and he looks at us. He says, that's not the end of the story. He says, I love you no matter what. That's what he's saying from the vantage point of the cross. I love you no matter what. And so the sooner we forgive, the sooner we're free. The sooner we seek forgiveness from Jesus the sooner we find freedom. We begin to find the life that he intended us to live. Life to the full. Life in abundance. That's what we start to find. So like imagine if we began to actually live as Jesus intended for us to live, forgiven and forgiving. Like imagine if we actually started to live emboldened by the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives, the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. And when we looked at people, just like Jesus looks at people, we start to see them as he sees them. And that was what? People in need of forgiveness. 
That's what he saw. He saw people in need of forgiveness just like you and I. And we find that where there is forgiveness, there's freedom. And today can be the day where you get to let Jesus set you free from whatever it is you might have been holding inside of you, from whatever forgiveness you've been refusing, for whatever forgiveness you haven't asked for, today can be a day where you say, all right, God, I I cannot even comprehend that love of you on the cross looking down at me. It's changing me, it's transforming me. Today can be your day for that. And so if you would, just set your stuff aside right now and take time for you. Close your eyes, bow your head. Maybe, maybe what you need to do this morning is you need to ask for forgiveness. Take time and do that between you and God. Maybe what you need to do this morning is ask for the power and the courage to go and forgive. Like just listen to the Holy Spirit working in your life and respond to him. Now this moment is for you and God. I'll close this in a moment. As you continue to just spend this time with God, I'd just like to talk to maybe some of you in this room because maybe today is the day that you know that Jesus is looking at you and he's telling you from the vantage point of the cross that I love you no matter what. Like maybe today is the day that he's saying to you, come to me. Stop running, stop going the other way. Come to me, ask for forgiveness, and I will set you free. That's what Jesus might be saying to you today. And if that's you, if you've been holding back, if you're waiting for that moment to release it to God and step into relationship with him, I just want to give you the opportunity to respond to the drawing that Jesus is doing on your heart right now so if that's you and you're ready to make that commitment you can just pray in the the quiet of your heart with me we pray Jesus I recognize that I cannot find freedom on my own I recognize that I need you so Jesus would you forgive me for my sin and would you draw me into you thank you for dying on the cross and willingly choosing me. Thank you for the gift of your Holy Spirit. Today I give to you my life, Jesus. Today I give you control. And if you needed to pray that prayer this morning, I want you to know that that nothing in your life carries more weight. Nothing is bigger. Nothing means more than saying, Jesus, I'm all in. And it's so important and it's so meaningful that we actually ask that you would share that with us. So if you'd be so bold, would you just slip up your hand and make eye contact with me and you'd just be saying, yeah, I'm, I'm all in today. I'm all in with Jesus. You can do that now. Yeah. I see you right there. 
Yep, see you back there, right here. Go all in. When we seek forgiveness, we find freedom. That is what Jesus offers. I don't want to miss anybody. God, we just, we are just in awe of how much you love us. We thank you that you would send your son, Jesus, to die for us, and that we would just begin to glimpse and understand what, what such love and forgiveness looks like. So please, Holy Spirit, would you fill us with, with the courage to forgive? Would you, would you fill us with, with your presence to go in and ask for forgiveness? I pray that we wouldn't just be transformed in a tiny moment in this room, but that we would go out of this room, God, changed. That maybe we need to go make a phone call. Maybe we need to write a letter. Maybe we need to have a conversation. Maybe we need to ask for forgiveness. Maybe we need to, to call someone on how much they've hurt us. May it be all centered in, in your love. May it be for your glory. We love you, God. Help us love you more and more. In your name we pray. Amen.